Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to the Irish Times. In June 2019, Conor Gallagher writes, Anna Creasel murder trial, the complete story. Listeners, this is the fourth instalment in a five-part series. The full series can be found on the NOAA app under the story titled Anna Creasel Murder Trial. The Trial It is not unusual for families of murder victims to sit through the trial of the accused. Often at least one family member remains in court for nearly all of the case, perhaps taking breaks during some of the more obtruse legal argument. Few spend the same amount of time in court as Geraldine and Patrick Creasel. Anna's parents, accompanied by a victim support volunteer, were present for every moment of the trial, from the swearing of the first juror to the final verdict. When they wanted some water, they would ask someone else to get it for them from the nearby canteen, rather than leave court themselves. Geraldine took notes constantly, except when she held her husband's hand during some of the more distressing evidence. Pathology evidence can often be the most upsetting evidence for families to hear, but Geraldine and Patrick remained throughout the testimony of Professor Mary Cassidy as she dispassionately described the autopsy process and the injuries inflicted on Anna. Boys A and B were both excused from being in court that day due to the graphic nature of the evidence. There were several moments when emotion was visible. A portion of Boy B's interview, during which he made a series of childish but nasty comments about Anna, caused her parents visible distress. He said Anna was an outcast. She didn't have a boyfriend and dressed in slutty clothes, he said. I thought of Anna like a weirdo, someone I should not be around. His description of seeing boy A attack Anna in the house also caused her parents a great deal of upset. Both accused sat beside either one or both of their parents during the seven weeks of evidence but they sat in different parts of the courtroom to each other and were never seen interacting. During lunch, they would retire to the consultation rooms located on either side of the entrance to Court 9, where a family member fetched their lunch from the canteen. In court, Boy A often rested his head on his father's shoulder, while Boy B held his mother's hand almost constantly. 
The judge insisted on 15-minute breaks every hour or so. These were for the boys' benefit, but were probably just as appreciated by everyone else in court, especially on the stuffy late May afternoons. The only major interruption to proceedings came on the afternoon of day 15 of the trial, when a note was handed up to the lawyers saying Boy B was having a panic attack. An ambulance was called and court was adjourned for the day. Boy B was treated at the scene and seen by his GP that evening. The incident occurred as the jury watched videos of Boy B's Garda interviews, during which he admitted lying to Gardi. No reason was given for the panic attack. There was another interruption earlier in the day when the defence had complained about someone in court staring at Boy B's family at length and said it was causing them distress. From then on, the court day concluded at 2pm rather than 4.15pm. The new timetable would add at least another week onto the trial, but avoided the even lengthier delays which would have resulted from repeat medical issues. It was decided at an early stage the jurors in the case would not come from the general panel, which is called every Monday in the CCJ to hear the week's rape and murder trials. Instead, a specially convened panel was brought in on Tuesday, April 29th. The judge gave the jurors the usual warnings, such as not serving if they knew the parties in the case. Reading from a carefully prepared script, he also warned them the evidence was likely to be distressing. Jurors were also advised they would be subject to criminal sanction if they disclosed the accused's identities outside of court. This warning applied to everyone else as well, the judge said. The warnings seem to do their job. It appears the identities of the boys have to date not been shared publicly online. During jury selection, each side is allowed to object to seven jurors without explaining why. All three legal teams used this right liberally. The end result was a jury of eight men and four women, all of them middle-aged or older. Anna's parents were among the first witnesses to be called by prosecution counsel Brendan Grehan. As well as taking the jury through Anna's last two days, Geraldine and Patrick also humanised her. Their descriptions of Anna's personality and hobbies made her a real presence in the courtroom, rather than an abstract piece of evidence. The jurors would never see any photos of Anna alive, but they would have a clear picture of her in their minds. Grehan also elicited detailed evidence of the bullying suffered by Anna and the distress this caused her. The point was to show she was vulnerable and easily taken advantage of by the accused, he said. It was clear Geraldine and Patrick found the process of giving evidence emotional, but neither sought to make speeches or cast blame while in the witness box. Their testimony was clear and calm. There was little hint of anger. The same was true for all four of the accused boy's parents. All gave evidence of their interactions with the accused before and after Anna's death, but none sought to use the witness box as a pulpit for proclaiming the boy's innocence. The furthest any of them went was Boy B's father, who said his son was not capable of a crime like this. 
Slowly but surely, technology is becoming an intrinsic part of running a trial, and the trial of boys A and B used it more than most. The seven child witnesses in the case gave evidence via video link from another room in the CCJ, sparing them the distress and distraction of facing a live courtroom. In the past, the use of video link has been plagued by technical problems, with technicians often fumbling to get the picture or audio working while a bemused jury looks on. It would seem those days are gone. All the children were able to give their evidence without interruption. A significant amount of CCTV was played to the jury by Garda Seamus Timmons, Nothing new there, except in this trial, the location of the CCTV was shown concurrently on a digital map of the area, making it easy for jurors to determine where exactly the accused were when captured on camera. Grehan would play this footage again when making his closing speech. Also helpful was the use of a computer-generated 3D model of Glenwood House, which was created by FSI and the Gartha Photography and Mapping Units. The location of relevant objects, such as the suspected murder weapons, the blood spatters and Anna's clothes, were shown in the model beside their photographic equivalents. It gave the jury the closest possible sense of being at the scene without having to visit the house. The 3D modelling programme has been used just once before in the 2017 prosecution of two brothers for murder. Ironically, during that trial, Grehan, who was defending one of the accused, objected to the use of the 3D model on the basis of it being untested. For such a complex case involving so many strains of evidence, the trial was conducted with remarkable efficiency. Defence concessions regarding several aspects of the case, including the lawfulness of the boy's custody and the gathering of evidence, meant many potential Gartha witnesses were not required to give evidence. Those Gartha witnesses, which were called often, only spent a few minutes in the box. On some days, early in the trial, five or six witnesses were called in a single day. Part of the reason for the pace was the lack of cross-examination from the defence. More often than not, Patrick Gageby for boy A and Damien Colgan for boy B declined to ask the witnesses any questions. This made it difficult to discern the nature of the boy's defence until very late in the case. However, some of the few questions posed by counsel gave some insight into their strategy. Gageby asked Geraldine Creasel if her daughter was sexually active. She replied she wasn't, something confirmed by later medical evidence. Colgan asked Professor Cassidy if someone who witnessed that attack on Anna would be traumatised. She agreed that they would be. Detective Gartha Daly and Gannon were questioned at length by Colgan on the manner in which they interviewed Boy B. Garthy didn't bring in specialist interviewers or give the boy regular breaks, counsel said. The detectives replied that they stuck to the rules and the boy's mother was with him at all times. In the absence of the jury 
Much of the defence work focused on persuading the judge to include evidence which was favourable to the accused while excluding the evidence which painted them in a negative light. For boy A, the most important evidence to exclude was the forensics. Gage B submitted the testing of his client's boots, on which Anna's blood was found, was not admissible as they had been taken by Gardi on false pretenses. He submitted Gardi had pretended to take the boots to investigate his claim of being assaulted by two men, but were actually taking them to investigate Anna's disappearance. He made the same argument for Boy A's phone. Detective Gartha Gabriel Newton said she took the boots and phone for no other reason than they might help her locate Boy A's attackers. She said she didn't even know Anna was dead at that stage. The judge agreed with Newton and the defence application failed. Next, Gageby argued the DNA evidence against Boy A was inadmissible because Superintendent Gordon had filled out the wrong form to authorise the taking of samples from the boy. Called to give evidence, Gordon conceded that, instead of filling in an authorisation form under the 2014 DNA Act, he filled in one concerning the 1990 Act. The prosecution said it was a record-keeping error but no more. The detectives who took the samples gave evidence that they were correctly instructed under the 2014 Act. Again, the defence application failed. One of the main objectives of Boy B's defence team was to have the jury hear evidence of Dr Humphreys, the psychologist who examined the teen at the start of the year and determined he had been traumatised by witnessing the attack on Anna. In the absence of the jury, Humphreys repeated what he said in his report, that the trauma caused Boy B to tell the Gardaí untruths. The doctor said he didn't like to use the word lie because he didn't want to seem judgmental. He told Colgan the boy was bright but naive and immature. By way of illustration, he said that during his stay in Oberstown, Boy B had requested Lego to play with a request the staff had never had before. The prosecution cross-examination of Humphreys by Grehan was easily the most combative of the entire trial. Counsel took particular issue with the doctor's assertion that Boy B had no knowledge of a plan for murder. Grehan said this was a matter for the jury. He said the doctor's report contained a lot of jargon, but there doesn't appear to be any engagement with the facts of the interviews. He submitted that allowing the doctor's evidence into the trial would trespass on the function of the jury as the judges of fact and effectively make Humphreys a 13th juror. After taking the night to think about it, McDermott excluded the doctor's evidence entirely. But the prosecution did not enjoy an unbroken record of success in their legal applications. In fact, a significant number of the judges' other decisions ended up going against them, including one concerning a novel attempt to introduce photos of a mannequin into evidence. Horror movies and heavy metal There is a long history of prosecutors deploying unusual exhibits in criminal trials. In 2010, a Bowron was presented in the Special Criminal Court to prove the accused was a member of the IRA. 
During the Troubles, a packet of digestive biscuits was presented in the same court, with prosecutors arguing it was a component of a homemade mortar. Striking exhibits can be especially helpful in murder trials. Over the years, juries have been shown swords, spades, guns, bats and, in the 2008 trial of Brian Carney for strangling his wife, a vacuum cleaner flex. Such exhibits can help juries visualise how a crime may have been committed far better than any description from a witness. That was the idea behind the prosecution's plan in this case to dress a mannequin up in the clothes worn by boy A during Anna's murder and present photos of it to the jury. Pictures of the mannequin fitted with the mask, gloves, snood, shin guards and knee pads found in the boy's backpack would be shown to jurors. It was, to say the least, an unusual request. The prosecution knew McDermott would need to be convinced of the merits of bringing such an unusual exhibit into a courtroom. It would essentially be showing the jury the last thing Anna saw before her death. At the midpoint of the trial, in the absence of the jury, Crehan handed the judge three photographs of the mannequin which had been dressed by FSI expert John Hode. The barrister said it would be nothing more than a visual aid to show the jury how items from the backpack were intended to be worn. He said the mannequin was no more than a representation of what the jury has already seen in a different format. Gageby, for boy A, objected on the basis the mannequin was speculative and there was no evidence it accurately portrayed what was worn at the time. For example, there was no evidence to show Boy A wore his hood up during the attack. Mr Justice McDermott tends to look at barristers over the top of his spectacles when he is sceptical of their argument. This is what he did as the prosecution tried to get the mannequin photos admitted. Whatever limited probative value is outweighed by the disproportionate prejudicial effects, I'm not satisfied that this photo should go in, he ruled. McDermott would use the same reasoning, combined with the quizzical over-the-glasses look throughout the trial when denying the prosecution permission to admit other evidence. Most of the legal wrangling was over the items obtained during the search of Boyer's home after his arrest, including a copybook containing various drawings and scribblings, including a sketch titled Nightcrawler, showing an emaciated figure with bandaged skull for a head. The words just kill them and just effing do it were also written in the book. This showed an interest in violent imagery, the prosecution said. The copybook also contained instructions for constructing a shell mask, proof the mask found in the backpack was made by boy A, they said. The judge allowed in the mask-making instructions but excluded the other items. I'm trying to tie it in with the case, but I don't see it, he told Grehan. He had a portfolio of material. That seems to be, on its face, the height of it. Next up was a questionnaire, signed by Boy A, which appeared to form a part of a school assignment. It read, Where do you like to hang out? Abandoned places. What are your favourite books? Horror. What are your favourite sports? Combat. What are your favourite movies? Horror and comedy. What are your favourite music? Rap and heavy metal. Single or taken? Single. 
I would describe myself as crazy, funny, adventurous. I am strange. I think differently. I feel not much. I hope to do well in life. I feel angry when someone tries to annoy me or hits me. I love steak and drawing. I hate homework. Aside from the obvious relevance of liking to hang out in abandoned places, the prosecution said the answers gave an insight into how the accused viewed himself as someone who is strange, thinks differently and doesn't feel much. These are teenage documents, McDermott said. Lots of teenagers watch horror movies and listen to heavy metal. Gageby called them juvenile jottings of a juvenile written in a juvenile fashion as part of some class of a school questionnaire. He continued, The fact he feels himself strange or doesn't feel much is likely to be taken out of context and in some way demonstrate that it is more likely that the author of this planned and killed a young girl. In my opinion, it just isn't there. The judge ruled out every part of the questionnaire except for the reference to hanging out in abandoned places. Among the most contested evidence was the huge amount of pornography found on Boy A's electronic devices. The prosecution sought to introduce evidence of 10 of the images which depicted sexual violence as well as the pornographic video mentioning Anastasia in its title, not Anastasia Creasel. The violent material could be relevant to the boy's attitude towards consent, he said. It is general background evidence. That's as far as we go with it. It is potentially relevant in that regard, Grehan said. Gageby countered that the probative value of the pornography evidence is so slight as to be imperceptible, while its prejudicial value is extremely high. If the prosecution wanted to introduce the violent images, they might have put them in context by introducing the thousands of other non-violent images, he suggested. It was also inadmissible because of the large time gap, six months between the material being accessed and the murder, Gageby submitted. McDermott agreed, ruling that admission of any of the pornographic material would cause an unbalance in the fairness of the trial. Also ruled out was a video found on Boy A's phone, which appeared to show Boy B hitting a stone block with a stick reinforced with steel bars. Holy shit, that's effed! Boy A could be heard saying as he zoomed the camera on the damage caused to the block. I didn't see any relevance other than attempting to draw an inference which could not be justified, McDermott ruled. He made the same ruling regarding evidence of internet searches by Boy B for various types of knives and for a YouTube video entitled My Girlfriend Tortured, Stabbed and Starved Me. Among the vast amount of evidence collected by Gardhi were several references to Satanism. In Boy B's room, Gardhi found a copybook laying out the rules of a satanic cult he had set up. There was a list of the group's members, including both accused, as well as the cult rules. Only pledge hosts can give pledges. Don't talk about it. Act normally like nothing happened. No talking about Jesus or God, only Satan. Unprompted, Boy B had told Gardy during his sixth interview that the cult was actually a homework club. 
Participants would share their homework with each other if they had forgotten to do it, he explained. The reference to Satanism was to dissuade other classmates from wanting to join. Satanism arose again when, during one interview, Daly asked Boy B if May 14th, the day Anna was murdered, had any relevance. That's doomsday, isn't it? the detective asked. Before the interview, Daly had put the date into Google and was brought to a website called Satan's Rapture, which featured a calendar stating the world would end on May 14th. The boy said the date held no significance for him and he was not familiar with the satanic calendar. At another point in his interviews, Boy B described seeing a pentagram, a symbol associated with Satanism, in Glenwood House. Before the start of the case, prosecutors and investigators debated the relevance of the references to Satanism. Detectives had discovered little to no evidence of motivation for Anna's murder. Perhaps an interest in the occult might provide an explanation. In the US in the 1980s, there were a series of violent crimes linked to Satanism, leading to what became known as the Satanic Panic among the general public. It was later established many of the crimes had little or no link to Satanism. Closer to home, the murder of a seven-year-old boy in 1973 in Palmerstown, Dublin, was suspected by some investigators as having a satanic link. There were several drawbacks to the Satanism theory, however. Pentagrams, like crudely drawn swastikas, are commonly used to deface derelict buildings, and Boybee's homework club explanation for the cult was corroborated by several classmates. In the end, the prosecution decided not to place significant relevance on the Satanism material. The jury would hear most of it in passing during the run of evidence, but it would not form a central plank of the prosecution case. That was the fourth instalment of Anna Creasel Murder Trial. The Complete Story. It was written by Connor Gallagher and read by Gronya Brookfield for Noah. You can listen to the fifth and final part of this series on the Noah app. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.